Hey everybody, it's James Lindsay. You are listening to the New Discourses Podcast, and today we have to talk about a really important idea. I don't think this will be a very long episode, so you don't have to like buckle up or anything like that, except in terms of the meaning of the content. We're going to talk about this idea called degrowth. I don't know if you've heard about degrowth, but degrowth is a catastrophe. I did a podcast previously that's ultimately about degrowth. If you remember, I did a podcast about this absolute zero program, absolute zero emissions by 2050, which is kind of a more extreme take on net zero, which is net zero emissions by 2050. So the difference being that with uh, absolute zero, we make absolutely no emissions. And with um, net zero, was we balance it out. So the amount of emissions in the amount of carbon that we're capturing and putting away or whatever else balances out to zero. So I came across this. It's fairly short. This is what I want to go through to give you a picture of it because I also want you to understand what's happening in order to achieve degrowth. This article on the World Economic Forum's agenda, which is, means it's their blog, uh, Climate and Nature, and the title is How to Accelerate the Decarbonization of Aviation. And so part of the degrowth movement, again, if you remember that previous podcast that I did about absolute zero, and I encourage you to go listen to that if you haven't heard it, it's alarming, is that the goal is to get the emissions down and to decarbonize things so that we can have a more sustainable future. So the idea of degrowth is uh, rooted effectively in Herbert Marcuse's One Dimensional Man from 1964, where he argues that socialism has the right ideology, the capitalism delivers the goods, but the problem is, is that uh, capitalism is unsustainable, among other things like some of its exploitative practices. Uh, he says we need to become content with a lower standard of living, with less, with fewer gadgets, less plastic, fewer things, blah, 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 blah. And ultimately, that's what degrowth is. It's accepting a lower standard of living on the justification of um, uh, sustainability or whatever the, the thing is that they want to call it. So you've heard also maybe the podcast I did about sustainable development goals. That's tapped into this. You maybe have heard the podcast that I did about the, um, the sustainability being the tyranny of the 21st century. And you may have heard the podcast that I did or read the article essay that I wrote about the idea of Herbert Marcuse's solving the riddle of history, where the idea is that, um, Productive socialism can be built like we have in China, uh, as we might call it, and at the same time, um, what we might agree to call sustainable capitalism that's going to be managed uh, through stakeholder capitalism is going to be the way that we bring the uh, overall productivity and size of the West down. Now, the degrowth thing, before I dive into this essay, and also I want to talk about this uh, socialist magazine with regard to degrowth, the degrowth thing is particularly um, funny in a way if you go look it up. If you go look up degrowth, and I almost did this, I put some of this on, on Twitter, I guess we have to call it X now, I'm not going to call it X, um, but if you go look it up, they'll say things, and there was another World Economic Forum document, I wonder if I could easily find it, where they talk about degrowth. And what they actually say is that the purpose of degrowth is not to shrink the GDP, but then they talk about how degrowth will shrink the GDP. They say that it's not about having smaller economies, but it is about having smaller economies. And then they try to introduce this new idea called the well-being economy instead, which is 
absolutely preposterous, obviously. So we're not going to measure our economic uh, output now in terms of productivity or growth or gross domestic product. Uh, in particular, we're going to we're going to measure something called well-being, and that's how we're going to know if we have a good and effective economy. Is do we have one that is producing well-being? And of course, who's going to uh, get to uh, name what that looks like? Well, not us. Um, that's going to be the stakeholders and the stakeholder capitalist model. That's going to be our tyrants, and they're going to decide for us what um, what that looks like. Uh, there's actually, I'm looking it up now, there's a lot of articles right now about um, degrowth and the degrowth movement, uh, both on the World Economic Forum website and others. Uh, just to give you a, a flavor, U.S. News, and uh, I guess that's U.S. News and World Report, maybe analysis, climate change, scarcity, chip away at the degrowth taboo. And the article on degrowth published in June by Davos organizer of the World Economic Forum hinted at degrowth impacts, suggesting that it might mean people in rich countries changing their diets and living in different ways. Uh, CNN is degrowth, a dangerous idea or the answer to the world's biggest problems. Uh, and World Economic Forum talks about it. We have this other essay on DW.com, whatever this is. Um, how risky is economic growth? Well, the degrowth movement wants rich countries to stop chasing GDP in a desperate bid to stop the planet from heating. So the idea is that we're going to shrink our economies. We're going to, in Herbert Marcuse's world, become content with less. As they said uh, a year ago, June 15th, 2022, at the World Economic Forum, degrowth, what is behind the economic theory and why does it matter right now? And it says that degrowth is a radical economic theory born in the 1970s. It broadly means shrinking rather than growing economies to use less of the world's dwindling resources. Uh, should say fewer, probably. Detractors of degrowth say economic growth has given the world everything from cancer treatments to indoor plumbing. Yes, indeed. And supporters argue that degrowth doesn't mean, quote, living in caves with candles, but just living a bit more simply. And so then they start off in this older piece, how do we save our planet? Some economists believe the only way. Notice this bullshit. Some economists believe. Yeah, that means they need, it's economists, plural. They need two of them. Some economists believe the only way is to radically scale back our global consumption of resources. This is a key premise of degrowth, a political and economic theory that is gaining traction as fears grow over climate change. But is it workable? And says, what is degrowth? Degrowth broadly means shrinking rather than growing economies. So we use less of the world's energy and resources and put well-being ahead of profit. So there's your well-being economy instead of a gross domestic product. The idea is that by pursuing degrowth policies, that can, economies can help themselves, their citizens, and the planet by becoming more sustainable. Practical degrowth actions might include buying less stuff, growing your own food, and em using empty houses instead of building new ones, the website Economics Help suggests. Degrowth as a term was coined in 1972 by Austrian-French social philosopher André Gors, according to the website degrowth.info. As a movement, degrowth started to take off in the early 2000s, according to media platform Open Democracy, which we can guess just by the name is probably communist. Modern degrowth protagonists include French economist Sergei Latouche, who argues that society's current model of economic growth is unsustainable. And it's all about this climate change. They say, well, you know, it says, why does degrowth matter? Well, economic uh, growth in society dates back to the 17th and 18th centuries, explains our world and data. That's when technological innovation started driving increased prosperity, yeah, which becomes a problem. 
Government policies have focused on growing and expanding economies ever since. With increasing awareness about climate change, the degrowth debate has accelerated. No, it has been accelerated by these manipulators. If economic growth continues to be the default goal, it will lead to climate catastrophe, the argument goes, which means they don't know that. They're not saying it's true. They're saying it's true, or so the argument goes. And they say with no hope of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees. It seems to be no coincidence that global warming caused by humans started around the 1830s. It seems to be no coincidence. Seems to be. But it may in fact be. It seems to be no coincidence, scientists believe, when the world's first industrial revolution was at its height. The solution is essentially to move away from the assumption that growth is good. So shrinking, contraction, degrowth is good. One of the things degrowthers would like to see is the end of gross domestic product being used as a measure of economic progress, notes The Conversation. Now, what is The Conversation? The Conversation is a website that publishes only people who have faculty positions in universities, and it is the darling of the World Economic Forum. So it is the unholy marriage between academia and propaganda media funneled through something like the World Economic Forum. They say GDP measures an economy's entire outputs and output of goods and services. But what are the experts saying? There are plenty of opponents to degrowth theory. Yeah, no kidding. Um, and then they, this is very interesting because I wasn't going to go through this one, but the way that they to push this is that news and opinion site Vox, that's their experts, argues that economic growth is what's given the world, quote, cancer treatments, neonatal intensive care units, smallpox vaccines, and insulin. So Vox, super leftist, comes out, is presented as coming out in favor of growth. Freedom from poverty, indoor plumbing, electricity, and longer life expectancies are other gains of growth, and the list goes on. So this is what they want to end with, degrowth. One of Vox's counter-arguments to degrowth is that many countries have shrunk their emissions while also growing their GDP. So you don't actually have to believe the climate scam. Even Vox is saying that, but this, what, what they're going to do with this is so typical. It says they've done this using technologies like renewable energy. Another argument is the impracticality of poor countries developing a, quote, up to a certain level of prosperity and then stopping while rich countries scale down to the same level. And who gets to decide which goods and services where it becomes a critical theory? That's what Vox does with it. Who gets to decide which goods and services people choose and spend their money on, Vox asks. There's also the inconvenient truth that most carbon emissions in the coming decades will come from newly middle-income countries like India, China, and Indonesia, rather than rich countries like the United States. It's not that people are not shouldn't do degrowth necessarily, it's that they're doing it wrong. But on the other hand, degrowth supporters also have compelling arguments, it says. The conversation quotes Sam Alexander, a degrowth advocate and research fellow at the Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute at the University of Melbourne in Australia. He says degrowth, quote, doesn't mean we're going to be living in caves with candles. Instead, it might mean people in rich countries changing their diets, living in smaller houses, and driving and traveling less. And that's why this is so relevant to the aviation article I'm about to yell about. It is important to clarify that degrowth is not about reducing GDP, says Jason Hickel, but rather about reducing energy and resource through, it says, throughput. Okay, so this is for a University of London academic. This is who Jason Hickel is. While Open Democracy points out that one way or another, quote, a different kind of economic structure is needed for an ecologically constrained world. Well, ecological constraint is their social constructed power grab. But 
they said that it doesn't necessarily mean having less GDP, but we're not going to pay attention to GDP, but then blah, 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 blah. There, it's all so contradictory. There are other articles. I went through a whole bunch of them on Twitter at one point, and I don't have them in front of me, where literally they say that the goal is to actually shrink GDP. <laughs> and then sometimes it says we're not going to shrink GDP. And then sometimes it says we're going to do what we do in schools and not measure the thing. Um, degrowth can work. Here's how science can help. That's nature. That's the academic journal Nature, Phys, physics.org, phys the physics uh, blog platform, uh, American Physical Society. Can degrowth save us and the planet? Degrowthers are convinced that degrowth must and will happen, either by design or by disaster. Degrowth is Degrowth or post-growth is not a form of austerity, and it's not about getting poorer. That sounds kind of magical. Um... It is a concept, they say, to rethink our values and what matters in life. Oh, okay. And they're going to tell us what matters and how our values are going to be organized. At the core of degrowth concepts are values such as well-being, care, self-organization, and conviviality. Uh, eating wasn't on the freaking list. Um, I guess that's under well-being, right? Yeah. It's a, it's a compelling invitation to prioritize our relationships with each other and with nature over extreme individualism. Oh, so it's communism. Got you. And our addiction to stuff. Oh, there's Marcuse. And purely consumerist forms of entertainment. And there's the critical theorists. It is, as Kate Soper argues, about an alternative hedonism. And so we're going to degrow and have a new uh, form of hedonism. Where did it come from, they say? Well, first, this is, I would add, this is the phys.org article. It's about reviving solidarity and the common good as an alternative to the neoliberal regime of the competitive market. So it's neo-communism as an answer to neoliberalism. Okay, check. The concept of degrowth, they tell us, originated in France in the early 1970s. In 1972, the Club of Rome, an economic think tank, which I did a podcast about them too, is about the limits of growth. They believe that the planet's going to collapse if we continue to use our resources. And so we got to degrow. Uh, in 1972, the Club of Rome, an economic think tank, published a report on the limits to growth. This became the first significant study to make a point that economic growth is not endless. Early adopters of uh, decroissance, which I assume means degrowth, but I'm not sure, were scholars such as Nicholas something, Krogescu, Rogan, Andre Gores, who we just heard about before, Ivan Illich, that's the de-schooling guy, Eric Fromm, that's a uh, Frankfurt School psychologist, and E.F. Schumacher. It's funny how they didn't mention that in the next year, 1973, Klaus Schwab at the World Economic Forum had uh, the Club of Rome, the Pecci or whatever the guy is in charge of it, come and speak at the World Economic Forum the next year. And... They say that more growth means more energy consumption and more extraction of material resources. Why do we think that an economic system, any economic system, can produce growth forever? Degrowth means living within the Earth's regenerative limits in, a, in socially equitable and collectively supportive ways. It's just communism dressed up. Then they, this is where degrowth concepts not only question the ideology of unlimited growth, economic growth, but they're also critical of the method with which economic growth is measured, namely via gross domestic product. Everybody fighting the fights in the schools has got to be having like chills right now because it's the exact same thing. Oh, the SAT measures the wrong thing. It measures whiteness or something. So we have to get rid of the test. Gross domestic product. Actually, it's the way we measure economics is wrong. We got to change it to some communist bullshit like well-being. 
While the monetary measure of GDP has always been problematic as a method to determine economic progress, this is even more obvious in the accelerating ecological crisis and the accelerating crisis of global capitalism, in case you wondered if this is communist. Remember, this is a physics website. Firstly, GDP does not take into account the widening gap of inequality. Communist. Thus, a rise in GDP will only benefit the few while the living standards of the many get worse. No, that's actually not true. Everywhere that we've had market economies open up, which is not the same as capitalism, by the way, everywhere, the living standards of everybody, except for a very small fringe that are very difficult for sometimes good and sometimes not so good reasons, everybody's standards of living go up. Secondly, they say it does not take into account economic externalities. That's a magic word that means that there are pollution and stuff. The profit of oil companies comes with a price that is not accounted for, the warming of the planet. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. The profit made due to deforestation of the Amazon to secure our consumption of beef comes with a price, the warming of the planet. Maybe. But you see how simplistic this is? The profit that water companies in the UK make because they don't properly take care of sewage comes also with a price and its color is brown. The exploitation of nature cannot be continued endlessly. And we are fast reaching a point where we must accept the regenerative limits of our planet. So it's the same same crap, but again and again and again, it's the same communist crap. These are excuses for them to take power. Um, there are other ways to deal with these issues. The most notable way to deal with the kinds of issues they're talking about are to build other energy sources. And I'm not talking about green alternative energy. I'm primarily talking about not only fossil fuels, which can be quite clean and can, in fact, have carbon scrubbing at the output, but nuclear power, which they don't like for inexplicable reasons. The reasons are very simple. It would solve this freaking alleged problem that they're trying to exploit to take power. All of the problems that they just described can all actually be solved by throwing more energy, not less, at the system. As always, in academia, this article, physics.org, tells us, phys.org, P-H-Y-S dot this is a July 2023 article, so you know the propaganda's on thick if physics.org is putting out this frickin' uh, article now. As always in academia, degrowth is not a concept set in stone. It is an open term with different foci and interpretations. There is no unified vision of degrowth, so there's a Mott and Bailey in play. However, in the face of our environmental emergency, which is fabricated, there is a surge in the academic literature that is activist, no shit, and interested in policies and strategies to move from growth to degrowth, in other words, to take power, into outline pathways beyond capitalism, in case you wondered if it's communist. This would require a democratization of the economy, in case you wondered if it's communist, where workers are in control and not shareholders, in case you wondered if it's communist. It would require a profound redistribution of wealth, in case you wondered if it's communist, to finance public services and a universal basic income, in case you wondered if it's communist. Such a redistribution of wealth cannot stop at a national level, in case you wondered if it's international communist. International solidarity in particular must uh, support for the global south, sorry. International solidarity in particular, support for the global south, is required for a transition beyond growth. The comeback of degrowth from the early 1970s anti-capitalist theories is not a mere academic exercise any longer. It's driven by the urgency of our predicament. So now it's not theory, it's praxis, in case you wondered if it's communist. Now degrowth is turning into a movement which is rapidly growing, pun intended. 
Ultimately, this is a struggle against capital, in case you wondered. This is P-H-Y-S, phys.org. This is a physics website saying this. Ultimately, this is a struggle against capital. Degrowth is communist. The human species will have to respond to the threat of ecocide with rigor and purpose. There is hope that degrowth will still be applied by design and not only by disaster. This depends on how quickly the movement can assert influence and power in case you wondered if it's communist. So I hadn't intended to read that, but isn't this a valuable article we're just going to have to go bonkers about later? And again, this is De- Can Degrowth Save Us and the Planet by Dr. Andreas Whittle, Nottingham Trent University, uh, July 27th, 2023, on phys.org, which is a physics website. But we were here. Do you have an idea about degrowth now? Do you have a sense of what degrowth is? It's communism, right? So... We have to accelerate degrowth in all industries. And if you remember from that uh, Absolute Zero podcast that I did, the aviation industry in particular by 2030 has to be massively hampered and by 2050 must not exist. There will be no commercial flying. Your children will not travel. You will not travel. You better start circling your family wagons now or soon because travel will become very expensive and difficult later. Light rail only, which in the United States we don't have any of, so (laughs) that'll be inconvenient. Their goal is, and if you fly lately, you're going to notice that our flying experience, our airport experience, our airline experience is increasingly becoming a second world country experience. It is much less efficient, much less on time, much more chaotic, much less pleasant all across the board. They are killing it. And meanwhile, it's much more expensive, incredibly more expensive. When I went to the Turning Point USA uh, conference the other week in, in West Palm Beach, Florida, United Airlines wanted me to pay $2,600 for a domestic flight from where I live to West Palm Beach. That's a lot of money. When I spoke at an event in Washington, D.C. earlier this week, I traveled there and I flew into Dulles International Airport, which is a little further out of the city center instead of Reagan International because the flight into Reagan International on United, which I typically fly because I have status there, was $2,100. These are insane prices. I used to fly internationally fairly regularly, big trans-Pacific flights, huge flights, never had to pay more than $1,300 for a flight. Now, domestic flights are sometimes twice that for shitty service, everything running late, people being unhappy. The whole thing is kind of caving in and getting more expensive as they do. And why? Why is the airline, well, because they're crushing it. Why is the airline industry getting so shitty? Well, let's read this article from the World Economic Forum, July 20th, 2023. So it is in this mid middle of this new propaganda push about the climate emergency, the climate crisis, the crisis of the world that we must have global centralization and cooperation to solve. I've gotten to Klaus a little bit there. This is July 20th, 2023, how to accelerate the decarbonization of aviation. Now, they start off every World Economic Forum uh, agenda, aka blog article, starts off. It says this is an eight-minute listen just to go through. It's by this uh, guy, Alejandro de Cuero. I guess it's Quero, probably. Alejandro de Quero Cordero, sustainability lead, aerospace, and drones of the World Economic Forum. Whether he has a real job or not, I don't know. But it says it's an eight-minute listen. It's not very long. It's going to be longer than that when I read it. Um, But 
they start off every one of these with a bullet point. So every essay and their agenda item starts off with three or four or five bullet points of what the article is about. You're going to hear how important it is to, to, to decarbonize the airline industry, aviation overall. It says the aviation industry, point number one, the aviation industry presents one of the most formidable decarbonization challenges. That's true. Turns out aircraft are hard to run without jet fuel. What a big freaking shock. A lot of the stuff that goes on in manufacturing jets, moving jets, etc., need lots of, say, diesel. Okay, so it's hard to decarbonize the aviation industry. Well, how important is it? How bad of a polluter? Every time you go buy a plane ticket these days, you'll notice it tells you how many kilograms of CO2 you're responsible for for your seat you bought. The more expensive your seat, the more kilograms you're responsible for, apparently. Your share goes up. Okay, so how much pollution does the aviation industry do? You're thinking, oh my God, they're flying up high. There's lots of CO2 that's tons of fuel. I mean, you hear the numbers of pounds of fuel in an aircraft and you're like, holy crap. It's a lot, right? Aviation, they tell us in point number two, contributes under 3% of global carbon emissions. Now, maybe you thought that I misspoke or misread that because it actually says under 3%. Like one, two, three, not 13, not 30, not something that sounds like three, but is some other number, three, under 3%, less than 3% of our emissions, global carbon emissions, if those matter at all, which I don't think they probably do, under 3% come from aviation, but we have to decarbonize this. So we have this very difficult, these two points together, we have this very difficult industry to decarbonize, and it's... Less than 3% of the problem, if the problem's even real. So what's the real purpose then? So you would think in a sane approach, you would say, well, crap. If decarbonization is actually necessary, let's assume for the sake of argument that it is, even though it probably isn't, you'd say, well, crap. Where can we easily decarbonize and where can we not easily decarbonize? So, okay, aviation is important to people. It's important to move goods and services, goods, people, families. Like there's lots of reasons. People fly demand. They keep telling us the flights are so expensive and difficult because demand is way up. They keep telling us people want to fly. People want to travel. And yet it's very hard to decarbonize this. So you say, okay, how much pollution does it make? Less than 3% of the problem, if it's even a problem. Wouldn't you think that maybe we're going to focus somewhere else and say, well, that's going to get a carve out. We'll do what we can. We'll try to get more efficient engines. We'll try to get more efficient designs. We'll try to put more people on planes or whatever the hell it takes. But we're not going to try to revamp and destroy the entire industry over less than 3%. But that's exactly the opposite of what they're really doing for degrowth. Less less, less. You have to get used to traveling less. That was part of it. You're going to have to eat worse food. You're going to have to stay home a lot more. Why? Because aviation contributes under 3% of global carbon emissions. So what you can tell from putting these points together is this has not a single fucking thing to do with saving the planet and 100% of to do with controlling your ability to move. If you are especially a poor person, they meaning less than like millions of dollars per year, you are not to go clog up their beaches, clog up their airports, clog up their tourist destinations, clog up the Versailles in France or the Louvre or, or you know, some of the things in London or any of the, the great, great Wall of China. They don't want poor people clogging up their luxury spots. So let's get the motherfuckers off an airplane so they can't get there. 
That's what this is about. You have a very recalcitrant problem if it's a problem at all. So if decarbonization is necessary, which I again assert it's probably not, but let's say it is, we have this one industry that means a lot to global business, to global shipping, and to people, and all combined, it's less than 3% of the problem, and it's very difficult to, to decarbonize. So they're going to prioritize decarbonizing it, and they're going to write an article about accelerating decarbonizing it. All this is about is getting fewer planes in the air, so there is fewer opportunity for poor people who aren't hyper-ultra-rich oligarchs to be able to fly around. In fact, they recently said that. Somebody got pinned down. I wish I knew the details to give it to you right. They got pinned down and said, why do you get to fly your private jets? And their answer was, because we can't afford it. This is about keeping everyday normal people off airplanes and out of tourist destinations. It has nothing to do with saving the environment. First of all, the decarbonization mission is not necessarily clear that it actually matters. Second of all, if it were to be completely obliterated, it's less than 3% of the problem. And number three, it's hard to do it. It would be if anything constitutes a reasonable carve-out from their totalitarian idiocy, it would be this. But they don't want us moving. They don't want us gathering. They don't want us having opportunities. That's what this is about. It's communism. And we better wake the fuck up. It is communism coming. They're going to crush our ability to move. They're going to crush our ability to gather. They're going to crush our ability to have opportunities. And if we don't do something before it's over, if we don't say something before it's over, if we don't make this as, this clear before they break these industries or get them to commit suicide, then we're going to lose them. The institutional knowledge, the whole kind of continuous operation. Think about it if you lose an entire, say, few years of people knowing how to do air traffic control. All the experienced ones who are competent at things go on and do other things. They're not coming back to ATC afterwards. Who's going to guide the planes? Well, now you've got 20 to 30 years to get the level of experience back to where it was because you took a couple year pause. This is something they understand and are manipulating. We had better say something about this. We had better start fighting against this. This decarbonization, degrowth bullshit has to get canceled. It has to get shut down. Decarbonizing aviation, this is point three, will require all available options, including battery electric and hydrogen power aircraft, while addressing scalability challenges for sustainable aviation fuels. This is just like that stupid absolute zero document. Okay, you're not going to fly a fucking plane with batteries. Get over it. They're heavy. You're not going to do it. Those things are, that's not real. Hydrogen power aircraft might be real. There's probably a reason we don't use them. People know how to use hydrogen. We use them to fuel rockets. There's a reason we don't fly hydrogen power aircraft already. I don't know what it is. Scalability challenges for sustainable aviation fuels. This is all crap. There's not even any reason that we need to decarbonize aviation in the first place, but now they say it requires all available options. We have to dump effort into a bunch of wild goose chases so that we're not paying attention to the fact that they're actually just shutting down aviation overall. It should remind you of where they're discovering in the crazy summer heat that they we've just had to have electric vehicles and now electric vehicles don't work in the crazy summer heat. Oh, they don't work in the cold either. Oh, they don't really work. Oh, we can't really mine that much lithium. Oh, we can't really make that many. Oh my God, they don't, the roads can't really endure them. The solution to this, these enormous sets of fake problems to do with electric vehicles is going to be that we can't have electric vehicles. The mining, the preparing, the building, the, the distribution, the use is all going to be unsustainable in the next wave of instability, uh, uh, unsustainability purges. The point is to get people not driving cars. This is the point is to get people not flying in aircraft, to get you stuck where you are. 
Point number four, these are just the bullet points. We didn't read this yet. Government policy is crucial. Oh, of course it is. Alongside any technological advancements to accelerate decarbonization goals. So the goal isn't to use you know, innovation and all of this to, to, to improve, say it matters, say decarbonization matters. We're not going to use, you know, the forces of a market that are bending in that direction for whatever reason. We're going to like, for example, say organically that the fossil fuels were to get very expensive or whatever. There would be organic market pressures that push us. And we're not going to look for that. We're not going to look for technological advances that solve problems. We're going to use government policy. Government policy is crucial so it's really just a power grab, isn't it? So how does this article go? And it's the, remember, the point of this is that degrowth is communism, and part of communism is going to crush our ability to be free, independent movers. So they're going to take away our ability to engage in travel. The travel industries, or the I should say the sectors of the travel industry, cruise lines, shipping, um, hotels even, uh airlines and so on, are all crushing themselves. They're all committing suicide. They're being forced through ESG policies and through whatever cult they've joined and whatever island-based activities they engaged in to get the power that they have, then now they're stuck. They're being compelled to commit ritual suicide, sticking the wakisashi into their guts and cutting it open to kill these industries for degrowth, which is, as we just heard from fizz.org, communism is a struggle against capital itself. In a significant development, they tell us, the international civil aviation organizations, every time I see an international something as organization or association, some communist horseshit's about to come down the pike. Every single time. Every single time. In a significant development, the International Civil Aviation Organization's Assembly embraced an ambitious objective last year by establishing an aspirational target for international aviation to achieve net zero emissions by 2050. This commitment reinforces existing goals and commitments undertaken by the aviation industry in individual states. This is where they're going to describe that uh, suicide thing. However, adopting a net zero emissions target also acknowledges the formidable challenge faced by aviation, recognizing it as one of the most challenging sectors to decarbonize, requiring all available options, including battery electric and hydrogen-powered aircraft. However, anticipated advancements in, in scalability of technology, such as sustainable aviation fuels, projected to help reduce greenhouse gas emissions, 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 it's like Pee-wee's Playhouse from back in the day. We all have to go nuts when we hear the magic word. Emissions, ah, destroy your economy. Emissions, ah, destroy your economy. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Projected, so sustainable aviation fuels and other technological advantages are projected to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 46 to 65%. That offers the sector a clear trajectory, they say. So you could maybe get the under 3%. So let's say maybe it's 2.8. We reduce it by roughly 50%. We could get it from 2.8 down to 1.4% of the problem. Ooh. Although realizing their potential will require active promotion and appropriate incentives and regulation. Get the carrot and get the stick. See, what they're saying is it's not going to be enough for the uh, airlines or the whatever to push for this for... Um, you know, reasons like that it's marketable or whatever else, there are going to have to be other reasons. The It's not going to be about doing business. It's going to be about 
incentives and regulation. It's going to be about being told, hey, there's a change coming. It's called sustainability. If you go along with us, it's going to be okay for you and your industry. But if you don't, we're going to have to destroy you because we're freaking communists. Because here's the first rule of communism. This is the core rule of communism. This is the most important thing to know about communism. Communists hate everything not under their control. The whole point of all communist ideologies, whether it's old school communism and Marxism, whether it's neo-Marxism, whether it's woke, whether it's critical race theory, whether it's queer theory, is in fact to denounce everything you don't control until you control it. If you want to control something, you denounce it until you control it. But what about the things you can't control? You must destroy them because there must be nothing under your control because it's inherently totalitarian. So the most important rule to realize with communism is they're either going to regulate it into their control or lure people into under their control with incentives or they're going to destroy it. So their incentives go along with us and we'll take good care of you and there are Right. And by the way, your um, executive bonuses can be really high, so we'll totally make it super corrupt. And we're going to regulate the living hell out of you. Because what they're saying here is no industry making its own decisions would possibly do this. No industry that wishes to survive would do this. This is them holding a gun to the industry's head with a big pile of money over on the table and saying, kill yourself and you can have the money. More or less. It's kill yourself or we're going to kill you. But if you kill yourself, we'll give you the money. And because it's an industry, the people at the top, the executives see the money. They know they're going to get it and they're going to be able to escape liability. No big deal. Realizing the potential of this so-called necessary decarbonization improvement will require active promotion and appropriate incentives and regulation. They have, by the way, here, have you read Decarbonizing Aviation? What is the shift to alternative propulsion? What will it require? Here's how we unlock the technology needed to make decarbonization a reality. How the First Movers Coalition is decarbonizing hard-to-abate industry. So this is a big agenda item for the totally on-the-up-and-up World Economic Forum. Decarbonization, which is part of degrowth, which is, as we just heard, communist. Hard-to-abate that's the next section. By examining the admissions distribution outlined in the Air Transport Action Group's Waypoint 2050 report, which I'm sure is a gem, I'm not going to click on it right now, we find that 96% of aviation emissions originate from aircraft with more than 100 seats. Remarkably, 66% of these emissions are attributed to highly successful single-aisle aircraft dominating the market. The remaining 4% is associated with aircraft with up to 100 seats commonly deployed for regional routes. Okay, so the problem is under 3%. Regional flights are 4% of that, which is like 0.12% or something like this. Less than 0.12%. Roughly a tenth of a percent of the emissions in the world are caused by regional flights. Guess which ones are the ones that cost me $2,600 to buy a ticket? Regional flights. They're going to get rid of the regional flights. Those are the ones that if you read the 2050 uh, Absolute Zero report, they say absolutely have to be crushed. It's not even long-haul flights, although those are going to have to be crushed, but that's going to be the point of the rest of the article. They're pointing out here that regional flights, which they are trying to phase out entirely to make it too expensive to price out, to close airports, in Europe, they're already closing airports anywhere there is between any two uh, cities where there is a rail option available instead. Regional flights globally constitute about a tenth of a percent of emissions. 
which may not even matter anyway, and that's the thing they have to crush. This is about making life inconvenient for people. It's like the bread lines. The bread line, yeah, they had their distribution thing, but the main point of the bread line was to keep people in line four to six hours once or twice a week so they couldn't be doing something else to waste their time so that you would have commissars watching them as you were as they were wasting their time so they're not meeting, they're not getting together, and they're not planning a revolution out of their communist shithole. So the remaining 4% is associated with aircraft up to 100 seats commonly deployed for regional routes. Therefore, to decarbonize the bulk of those emissions in the short term, the focus lies on SAFs, which offer a technically feasible solution using so or single aisle uh, something single aisle flights or something like that, uh, which offer fuselage maybe, which offer a technically feasible solution utilizing the current infrastructure of aircraft and airports. However, the key challenge lies in scaling up the production and supply of those aircraft. According to the Making Net Zero Aviation Possible report, which I'm sure is a just gem of a document, meeting the demand will necessitate 300 SAF production plants by 2030, with a projected requirement of up to 3,400 plants by 2050. This need presents a significant challenge regarding feedstock availability, particularly as biomass resources are limited. Now I have to look up what SAF means because this, oh, it's sustainable aviation fuels. It's not single aisle. My bad. So in the short term, to decarbonize the bulk of those emissions in the short term, the focus lies on sustainable aviation fuel, which they're apparently going to make from corn. Is what it appears. We're going to need 300 SAF production plants at sustainable aviation fuel plants by 2030 with a projected requirement of up to 3,400 plants by 2050. The problem is the need presents a significant challenge regarding feedstock availability, particularly as biomass resources are limited. Why is Bill Gates buying so much farmland? To scale sustainable aviation fuel in line with these 2050 targets, rapid deployment of power to liquid plants will likely be required after 2030 to overcome the feedstock constraint of bio-based routes. Industry will play a key role in meeting this challenge, but it is but it is clear government uh, sorry, but it is clear government targets, frameworks and policies will be needed to support the widespread adoption of sustainable aviation fuels within the aviation industry. So we're going to move to unrealistic fuels and they're going to have to grow a lot of biomass and they're going to have to use power to fuel conversion uh, in order to meet demand. When considering the broader context of decarbonization, the significance of electrification may surpass initial estimates. While projections indicate its importance in the emission reductions at around 2%, this technology is crucial in supporting the decarbonization roadmap. So the problem is less than 3% of the thing in the first place. And here, the importance of this for electrification is it's only going to solve 2% of the problem. So 2% of the 3% problem, 0.06%. Wonderful. This technology, they say, is crucial in supporting the decarbonization roadmap. Notably, battery electric aircraft offers the advantage of eliminating in-flight emissions. Emissions. Ah! Peely's Playhouse. Ah! Word of the day. Ah, everybody give all the power to the government. Emissions. Ah, in recent years, numerous concepts for electric, electrical vertical takeoff and landing vehicles have emerged. I think that means helicopter type drones. 
However, they are not intended to entirely replace existing commercial and regional routes, which typically operate on less than 800 kilometer distances. You want to ride in a fucking drone for 800 kilometers? You want to like, oh, a 500 mile ride? Yeah, no problem. I'm going to fly from uh, Nashville, Tennessee to Washington, D.C. in a drone. Yeah, freaking great idea. According to the forum report, Target True Zero, unlocking sustainable battery and hydrogen-powered flight by 2035, lithium-ion battery electric aircraft are expected to have a maximum operating range of approximately 400 kilometers, increasing to 600 kilometers by 2050. So we're going to see we're going to get rid of the existing fleet of airplanes that can say fly 5,000 kilometers or 10,000 kilometers and replace them with things that can go 400 kilometers before you have to plug them in. By 2050, it'll be up to 600 kilometers. It's like the problem with electric cars, but times a million. Good luck crossing the Atlantic in one of those. If battery electric aircraft continue to evolve, electrification could be significant within a global decarbonization framework. Electric motor... So don't despair. We could come up with cool technology stuff, but not really. Electric motors combined with other technologies such as electric propulsion with uh, sustainable aviation fuels or hydrogen as in a hybrid aircraft can significantly extend the aircraft's range. Then we have a quote. He quotes himself here, or it's a pull quote. Governments must define clear goals and milestones for battery electric and hydrogen propulsion to attract investors and drive industry action. In other words, nothing about this is organic. Nobody wants to invest in this freaking fake program. Nobody thinks this is a good idea, so governments must make it happen. Advancing technology. This broader range enhances the regional market's potential, positioning hybrid aircraft as a viable alternative to new turboprop designs that can sustain, substantially reduce emissions compared to smaller jets. How fast do they go? Oh yeah, slow. Real slow. Additionally, hybrid aircraft can help facilitate safety and uh, security certification processes for electric motors and hydrogen concepts. Why don't you just fly the regular jets? Oh yeah, decarbonization fake stuff, that's why, because we have to degrowth. It's really, remember, this is really about degrowth. Moreover, in the short term, hybrid aircraft can contribute to decarbonizing on-ground operations during taxiing, takeoff, and landing stages, so you don't have to burn fuel if you just take your drone off from the gate. Offering immediate environmental benefits of, okay, what percentage of the entire process, how much, how much fuel are they burning to taxi? Not that much compared to the flight. Just not that much. You know how I know? They had to burn some fuel off on this flight I was on one time. The plane was going to be too heavy. They put too much fuel in it. They can't just take the fuel back out, apparently. So we had to go over to the staging area and run the engines with the brakes on pretty hard for like 20 minutes. Takes a while. Normally, you only taxi for like 10 minutes. Not that high level of engine use. So it doesn't use it. But that's immediate environmental benefits. Gotta hate these people. Several technical efforts must be combined to successfully implement battery electric. Pause for a minute that they're literally talking about battery electric airplanes. Like, just give me a freaking break here. What, what are some of these challenges? Ensuring renewable charging sources. Oh, so it won't be good enough that you have a charging thing. It's going to have to be charged with, like, wind in the sun. This is just the same as with the electric cars. This is just meant not to work, and then nobody can fly. Optimizing battery life cycles and enhancing energy density. 
Maximizing energy density can significantly improve the range and efficiency of battery electric aircraft, further supporting their viability as a sustainable aviation solution. A sustainable aviation solution suggests that there's a sustainable aviation problem, but I don't think there is. They said it's less than 3% of the problem. You have a highly valuable sector of our lives and economy that is hard to abate, as they phrase it. It's hard to decarbonize. But it's less than 3% of the problem, and it becomes necessary to find a solution. This is bullshit. Overall, a big portion, around 26% of emissions reduction, still depends on another important technology, hydrogen. That means accelerating the production of green hydrogen by 2035. It just makes hydrogen sound like a scam. A sufficient supply of green hydrogen is essential, as blue hydrogen might not, uh, may not yield significant climate improvements compared to conventional jet fuel. Oh, so even regular hydrogen is not good enough because it doesn't really fix the problem. So you have to have green hydrogen, which God only knows what that is. Additionally, it, what it is is it doesn't work. That's what it is. Additionally, advancements in fuel cell technology and lighter storage tanks are vital for optimizing the efficiency and range of a hydrogen-powered aircraft. I think they're all propellers that go really slow, too. They're really expensive, if I remember right. Designing aircraft with hydrogen performance in mind, including strategic placement of hydrogen tanks, sounds like they might blow up or something, is thus crucial for maximizing their capabilities and reducing environmental impact. So it does, in other words, they don't even work. Effort should also focus on research, uh, researching and mitigating the potential impact of, con of contrails formed by hydrogen-fueled aircraft containing increased water vapor. Oh, yeah, I remember because water vapor actually turns out to be a really, really strong greenhouse gas. So hydrogen planes it literally just belch out clouds out of their butts, like apparently a problem. By prioritizing these considerations, the aviation industry can unlock the full potential of hydrogen technology and drive the transition toward a sustainable and decarbonized future. At no point have we ever had a real case made for why we need a decarbonized future, but that's how they're going to get their power. That's how they're going to regulate us into uh, poverty and no travel. Regulatory environment. This is the last section. All these technical questions and roadmaps must be supported by regulation. Why? Because degrowth is communism. Governments and regulatory bodies may feel overwhelmed about the steps to be followed. In response, the World Economic Forum and the Aviation Environment Federation have published a new report, Target True Zero, Government Policy Toolkit to Accelerate Uptake of Electric and Hydrogen Aircraft. The aim of this toolkit is to provide governments so communists, with both the opportunity and the options to help develop approaches toward accelerating the development of zero-emissions aircraft technologies as part of an overall decarbonization plan for the sector. Isn't that just charming? Oh, there's more. Sorry, I thought that was the end. There's more. As regulators, framing a net-zero aviation strategy will require a comprehensive understanding of market segments, aircraft sizes, airport infrastructure, and the potential for renewable electricity or hydrogen supply. Ain't nobody talking about building a damn nuclear plant if we were going to have to have that much electricity. Ain't nobody talking about it. Ain't nobody talking about it. It's like that wet bulb temperature thing that went viral the other day. So wet bulb temperatures allegedly hit 94. That is actually very serious. Wet bulb is not the same as dry bulb temperature. So that's high humidity, high irradiance, and high um, uh, temperature at the same time. So it's 
dangerous, wet bulb temperature 94. It may or may not have happened. It may have been propaganda, but let's say that it did happen. Okay, so what? So then they're saying that this is proof of climate change, so we have to produce less energy, apparently. They said it's impossible to live in 94-degree wet bulb without air conditioning. Okay, so it sounds like what we need is more air conditioning if that's going to be the case. If for whatever reason the world's heating up, we're probably going to need more air conditioning. So what's their solution? Less fucking energy. Well, guess what? Air conditioning requires a lot of energy. So their solution is less? No, 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 no. The solution is not, oh, well, we better start building. This is going to be base load capacity. Better build some 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 nuclear plants that are going to be able to handle that elevated base load capacity because if temperatures are going up and we need people to survive and be healthy, we need more energy for air conditioning that they can afford and that, that actually works. So let's build nuclear plants. And it's like, no, it's not. It's like, let's cut down 16 million trees in Scotland to put fucking windmills. This is all fake. This is all fake. They're making a catastrophe out of thin air that they're then going to use to justify having to seize power to solve the emergency. It's like what they're doing in the cities like Portland and San Francisco, where they have all of this freaking shoplifting. And then they're like, well, we don't know what to do about it. Well, I don't know. I have this weird idea called lunch, arrest people and prosecute them. You know, like we used to do, and it kind of worked. No, 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 we can't do that. It'd be racist or something. No, why don't you just do that? But what's their solution instead? Well, we have all this. Let's put facial recognition cameras on the entrances to stores, which so we can build out the infrastructure. We'll keep the criminals out. Yeah, and you're also going to be able to decide based on social credit who gets in and who doesn't get in. They're going to be able to apply a social credit system at the entryway to shops, just like in China. And people are like, yeah, that's a solution because they don't want to go back to police because they believe police are racist. Isn't it neat how that all worked? Policing 4.0, it's freaking cameras that don't let you in because your social credit score isn't good enough. So when they debank Nigel Farage, for example, for having the wrong political opinions, they could just skip the whole step of debanking him and they could just say, well, yeah, you have a, we'll do whatever you want with your money. You can't get into any store because you have black social class like under Mao. Um and people will, will clamor for it because policing is racist, so we have to move away from policing. Terrible. So this is the same thing as regulators. Framing a net zero aviation strategy requires comprehensive understanding, right, of all these different things. This understanding may differ across countries, but governments must define clear goals and milestones for battery electric and hydrogen propulsion based on these insights to attract investors and drive industry action, which we talked about before as a pull quote. That means... It doesn't work. Nobody wants to invest in this, so they have to create government bogus reasons to drive investment. Sounds like one of those scams like Solyndra all over again. Building stakeholder partnerships, in other words, the tyranny, the, 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 the Soviet, building stakeholder partnerships will help to assist this objective by identifying priority actions while alignment on aviation strategies with economy-wide plans for hydrogen and renewable energy development is also essential for progress. Sounds like it's degrowth, so it's not progress by definition. It's literally regress. Regress, not progress, but fine. On the other hand, governments must better understand how to create an enabling environment, supporting international civil aviation organization initiatives while facilitating the development and deployment of alternative propulsion aircraft through research infrastructure support and regulatory updates. Notice that government's job isn't to get the hell out of the way and let the aviation industry do what it does, which is to manufacture and operate aircraft to get people and goods into different places at the maximum of efficiency so that they can, you know, afford to buy tickets and those can work out really great to raise people's standards of living. That's not what it has to do. Governments must produce an enabling environment to support captured organization initiatives. That's what they have to do. Facilitate communism. Uh, 
while facilitating also the development and deployment of alternatives, whatever their scam is. The avi- again, it's the same scam all over again. As the aviation industry's security and safety certifications are crucial to public acceptance, harmonizing certification approaches is potentially the most important step for accelerating progress. Oh, everything again. They're going to go after the certification processes and put them under communist control. That's what they always do, isn't it? Pick an industry. That's what they do. That's what they do in the travel industry. That's what they do in the hotel industry. If you want to be a uh, certified provider of travel services, this is not me making stuff up. I just don't remember what the actual letters are. I think it's CNP are the letters, but I don't remember what they stand for. If you want to be certified, if you want a license, just like if you want to be a licensed realtor or a licensed teacher or a licensed uh, physician or a licensed whatever, you're going to have to go through the brainwashing program and be part of the 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 the, uh, the regime uh, sustainability goals. That's the only way they'll let you get a license. It's not legitimate. It doesn't mean that you are on the right, that you're able to do your job well. It means that you're able to follow the Soviet's orders. That's the economy that they're trying to build out. We'll read that again. As the aviation industry's security and safety certifications are crucial to public acceptance, harmonizing certification approaches is potentially the most important step for accelerating progress. And then at the last paragraph, and it is really the last paragraph this time I see the bottom They remind us why this is so important. The global aviation industry is responsible for just under 3% of global carbon emissions. Imagine writing that and trying to give people a sense like, oh, this is really important. It's just under 3%, guys. Just under 3%. Did you even consider it's just under 3%? It's just under 3%. It's like if I gave you 100 bucks and said, you know what? You have a hundred bucks. You can buy whatever you want for lunch. Thanks for coming to my conference. Here's a hundred dollar gift card. Go buy whatever you want. And you saw a two dollar and seventy five cent coffee, and you're like, "Oh, I don't know if I can spend it. I only have a hundred dollars." That's literally just under three percent. Coffee was two two seventy five, two eighty, and you're like, eh, "I don't know. I don't have enough money on my gift card that has a hundred bucks on it." That's literally what that means. Imagine writing that and trying to get people to think that this is a necessary impetus to, to totalitarian action, to more government influence, to ruin everything, and to destroy the existing industry with all this crap technology that they admit throughout the entire you know, cheerleading article doesn't work. It is responsible for just under 3% of global carbon emissions and projected to emit more as travel demand rises in emerging economies. There is no single measure to decarbonize the sector and realizing net zero, communist objective, will require a broad focus that maximizes the potential of technological advancements, financial incentives, and partnerships, so lots of cronyism, corruption, and scamming. But doing so will put the sector on track with its decarbonization roadmap. It doesn't put it on track with like reality. It doesn't put it in track with success. It puts it on track with its decarbonization program, which is now being foisted on it through totalitarian power. This is what we have to, we, we have to stand up to. I'm telling you, it is very important to realize that the entire travel and tourism industry from hotels to airlines to everything else is being destroyed from within. And they are doing so under the auspices of degrowth, decarbonization, lowering emissions, net zero. These are the words all off the justification of not climate change, but climate crisis, except they actually redefined climate change to mean climate changes to the climate that are caused by human activity. So that when they say climate change, it means something very specific, not that the climate is changing, but that humans are causing the climate to change. 
Um, I'll just remind you that <laughs> the very end of this fizz.org article where they said, ultimately, this is a struggle against capital. That's what this is about. This is communism. It requires a profound redistribution of wealth to finance public services and a universal basic income. Such a redistribution of wealth cannot stop at the national level. International solidarity in particular, support for the global south, is required for a transition beyond growth. That's what this is all about. This is about communism. The airline industry is being destroyed in terms of communism, under the auspices of the climate crisis. With all of these words. So I wanted to introduce, I'm not going to just keep banging on this. Vox has an article, I should click on it and read it maybe. The degrowth movement to fight, to fight climate change explained. I bet that's just a winner from August of 21. Degrowth opponent, uh, proponents argued that to save Earth, humans need to shrink global economic activity. Because at our current levels of consumption, the world won't hit the IPCC target of whatever the hell. Who cares what the IPCC communist thing says? But I wanted to introduce to you this episode the idea of degrowth and to give you an idea that it's dipped into the aviation industry on purpose. Uh, the aviation industry, which has no particular reason to be targeted, including regional flights, which are almost none of the problem, uh, if the we say that there's a problem at all. Is there a decarbon? Is there a sorry a uh, emissions problem? Doubt it. That's causing the global climate crisis. Probably not. But okay, maybe there is one. How much of the problem is aviation? Under three percent. Oh my God, not whole, not three percent. Oh wait, it's less than three percent. Wow. Okay, so it's a huge problem. Not. And then regional flights account for four percent of that problem. Four percent of three percent of what's not a problem in the first place so this becomes an emergency for degrowth and of course the propaganda right now for why we need degrowth is that it's summer and summer's hot so they're running a huge propaganda on how hot it is and that the climate crisis is here and we're all going to die and not have a future uh, while they go buy beachfront property for the rising oceans that aren't going to rise and swallow their houses up because they know it's a freaking scam and at no point in any of these scams about degrowth whether it's less electricity, less energy, less air conditioning, even though it's going to get hotter and therefore people are going to die. At no point in any of any of it, and we talk about people dying in the heat, but people really die in the cold, so less energy is really going to mean people freezing to death in winter. Um, many times more do. Of course, The Lancet published an article recently, and what did they do? They put a graph in there where they inflated the scale of heat-related deaths uh, compared to cold-related deaths, so it looks like they're kind of on par, so global warming sounds scarier than freezing to death, because what happens is when they restrict, when they degrow, when we go beyond growth and we restrict, restrict the amount of energy, people are going to freeze to death. It's not about people getting hot. It's not about having no, not enough air conditioning. It's about people freezing to death in the winter. And instead of saying, oh my God, maybe this is real because we're going to treat it like it's super real so we can give them lots of power, apparently. It's super real. We better build base load nuclear plants stat everywhere as many as we can to deal with the problem because throwing less energy at a problem basically never solves it. Throwing more energy at a problem opens up all your options to start figuring it out. And we have a, I don't think we need to focus on so-called clean energy in terms of carbon, but we have one. We have a sufficiently advanced technology that could actually cover almost all of base electricity load over the world and create massive standard of living increases called nuclear power, but they're against it because the goal isn't to just cause degrowth of the economies and put it under their communist control is to degrow 
the size of the population. That's literally what the Club of Rome has been about with its Beyond Growth stuff. Uh, it is literally about that. And so having more energy and thus more ability to have standard of living and prosperity would not facilitate degrowth. Um, I actually forgot, so I'm going to come back to it now since we're at the end about degrowth. Just to really drive home the point, somebody sent me this uh, on Twitter, ironically, as I was getting ready to sit down and record this. This is the Monthly Review, an independent socialist magazine. Uh, the issue is July, August 2023, and I have a screenshot of the cover. Uh, the, the big anchor article is Frederick Engels on Disarmament by the editors. So this is communism, right? And so what is the subject of the July, August 2023? Remember, this is the middle of this huge propaganda push. July and August is when they've launched it. What is the, the, what is the topic of this issue of the magazine? Planned degrowth, eco-socialism, sustainable human development. That's literally what it's about. And so there's a big article about that. What are the other articles that they uh, advertise? A big one, degrowth, what's in a name? And then degrowth and socialism. That's an, an essay, planning degrowth. We can assume it's central planning of degrowth. Remember, this is a independent socialist magazine. These are the articles in this month's issue. Global poverty and the case for democratic socialism. An ecologically sustainable and democratic economy. The communal alternative in Venezuela. The eco-socialist mode of cooperation on technology and degrowth. Democratic planning for degrowth. Nine theses on eco-socialist degrowth. Degrowing China by collapse, redistribution, or planning. And then the picture, it's not a very nice uh, cover. It just has a little squiggly drawing in the middle. And when you look close, what it is is a literal downward spiral like going into a drain of a gray line working in a circle, getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And in the very center, it shows it turning into a green dotted line that's actually just a circle. Like it looks like the edge of the drain that our economies are being sucked into. And that's the idea of planned degrowth, eco-socialism and sustainable human development. In case you needed further evidence that what degrowth is, is eco-socialism, a.k.a. communism using the environment as the excuse. That's what this is about. So degrowth is a big fight, and we had better start fighting it. This is like the big push is going to be into the climate crisis, followed by the need for degrowth. This is going to be the big... Everybody's like, what are they going to turn to next now that we've got the drag queens and the queer theory thing? Climate change, guys. Climate crisis climate crisis and try to discipline yourself not to talk about it as climate change. Try to discipline yourself. That's a term that they have stolen and co-opted. Try to talk about it in terms of climate crisis and that the climate crisis is a fraud. The climate crisis is a scam. That degrowth is not a solution. That degrowth, in fact, is eco-socialism. In other words, it is communism using the ecological matters or, or climate or whatever as the excuse. We have got to fight degrowth. We're going to lose our industries like aviation, thus the travel and tourism industry. We're also going to lose our ability to move with vehicles, with cars. Uh, we're going to lose our ability to sustain, to, to uh, realistically heat and cool our homes and our environments. Everything is going to get worse, and that was part of the plan all along. That's what Herbert Marcuse said in 1964 in One Dimensional Man, that we have to get used to lower standards of living and less so that we can have a socialism that allegedly works. That's what this is all about.